today, uh, where we're going to be going through the book of Titus. Uh, this is a fairly short book throughout the New Testament and is part of a series of books written by Paul called the Pastoral Epistles, which are letters that he wrote to a couple of his young protégés, including this, uh, this young guy, Titus, where he's uh, helping them understand what Christian leadership should look like. Now, although this letter of Titus is written to leaders, Christian leaders in particular, there is this wisdom that we can see for every single Christian in how we should live in our everyday lives and how we can grow as followers of Jesus. Um, now, a lot of you may take this time as we enter into the new year, looking back at, uh, at things that uh, have happened. There might be great joys or great sorrows as you look back on this past year, and you might look th- uh, th- uh, towards the coming year. And there may be goals that you are wanting to achieve as we enter into the new year. And there may be elements in your life that you want to change. But there is no uh, question more important when looking back and looking forward than asking the question, have I grown closer to Jesus over these past 12 months? And therefore, have I grown more like Jesus in my everyday life? They are the key questions to ask around this period of the year. And Paul's letter to Titus in particular has this wisdom for all believers and how they might grow more like Jesus in their lives. So as we go through this book, uh, it's particularly relevant for those of you who have any sort of leadership, Christian leadership in your life at all. Um, And it speaks into how you lead with Christ-like character. Um, But this wisdom has this potential to speak to all of us to make us more like Jesus with its foundation being on uh, on the gospel. So if you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Titus. It's a very small book, only three chapters. Feel free to use the table of contents if you need to. Uh, Titus 1 verses 1 to 16 is what we'll be reading from. And it says, Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was so that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious groups, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially for uh, those of the circumcision group, which are Jews. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things that they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's uh, own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil, uh, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, just stereotyping people right there in, uh, in this letter. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. 
so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and who do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but their actions, in their actions, they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. In June 2021, there was a podcast that was released um, called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. This podcast was released by Christianity Today, and it quickly uh, rose to becoming one of the most listened to podcasts in the Christian genre uh, across the entire world. This podcast, it detailed the story of Mars Hill Church, which was founded by uh, a guy called Mark Driscoll. Mark Driscoll, he was the senior pastor of Mars Hill Church and began a church planting network called Acts 29. Mark Driscoll grew Mars Hill through his charisma and natural speaking ability and he grew grew this church to over 12,000 people uh, per week, uh, over 15 locations, over four states throughout the USA and eventually he became the most listened to preacher in the entire world and became a new New York Times best-selling author. Along with all of this, at one stage, he was my own favorite preacher, and I would not miss one of his sermons uh, a week. But in 2014, everything seemed to fall apart for this church at Mars Hill. There had been years and years of complaints and severe difficulties within the church, despite its growth, and the church and the leaders, including and especially Mark Driscoll, faced some accusations, including bullying and abuse, creating a culture of intimidation and coerciveness, uh, blackmail, dictatorial leadership, manipulation of book sales, plagiarism allegations, financial mismanagement, and harsh treatment of women. Many of the pastors of the church protested the poor behaviour that they saw coming from, uh, from the top. Um, they uh, protested the ineffective leadership structures and culture with many of these pastors then leaving the church after having written to the senior leadership. Mars Hill it was eventually removed from the Acts 29 network, which it helped to begin. Um, and Mark Driscoll was placed on leave, eventually resigning from his role as senior pastor. Later on, the church dissolved with Rick Warren, who was a very well-known uh, pastor from the States, being the guest preacher at their very last service on the 28th of uh, December in 2014, that week between, that we find ourselves in right now, between Christmas and New Year's. Then seven years later, seven years after this church dissolved, the podcast was released, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And... Uh, and this, uh, this podcast, it went through different information about what happened at Mars Hill Church. It had interviews with church leaders and members, with people who were connected to the church, with Mark. Uh, it had uh, conversations with Mark Drill supporters and Mark Driscoll critics. And yet everyone who was interviewed could agree that Mars Hill had certain unhealthy uh, cultural and structural issues that existed because of the way that it had been founded, and eventually this led to the church's demise. 
Now, in this church closed, I was 24 years old. I had finished my fourth year of pastoral ministry, and I did look up to this guy, Mark Driscoll, as an example to follow. I didn't know the background issues in the church. All I knew was that there was a preacher that I admired who it seemed had certain character issues that led to the, uh, uh, to the falling of this church. I was genuinely upset when all of this stuff took place. Although I'd never met Mark Driscoll myself, and I never will, I admired him and somewhat looked up to him from a distance. So then to have your view of someone who you thought would exemplify Christian living come crashing down, it brought real pain to to my heart when all of this happened. Unfortunately, this is not an uncommon story that we see around the church today. Um, It seems that almost every month there is a new Christian leader who has fallen in some way. Bill Hybels, Carl Lentz, Ravi Zacharias, Perry Noble, Ted Haggard, Jimmy Swaggart, Tully and Chavidjian, and the list goes on and on and on. These are leaders who clearly disqualified themselves from ministry, and there's many others from every single different uh, Christian denomination, theological tribe, and background who have found themselves in a similar issue. Then there are the leaders who have seemingly fallen from grace within the public sphere. Now, they maybe haven't disqualified themselves from ministry, but they have made decisions that were unwise displayed character issues and brought the gospel into disrepute. Now, some of these names and others might, uh, might be people that uh, you know and that maybe you have looked up to at some stage in your life as an example of what the Christian life should look like. You may have read books or listened to sermons by some of these different people, and then you were let down by discovering what happened behind the scenes in, uh, in these different people's lives. This is painful when you see um, this falling of a Christian leader happen from a distance, but it's far more painful when you see this happen uh, with someone that you know and care about personally and deeply. A few years ago, a friend of mine who was a pastor in a nearby church was removed from ministry. This friend of mine was counselling a couple who was having marriage issues and eventually he formed a connection himself with the wife of the couple that he was counselling. The pastor who was married himself with kids initiated one-on-one catch-ups with the wife of the couple that he was counselling and eventually they began having an affair. They both left their spouses to be one another. He was fired from his role and our friendship ceased to exist. Now, maybe you have had something similar happen in your own life at some stage. It's issues like this that can, one by one, cause people to walk away from the church. And it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with a leader's gifting or ability. It has to do with their character. None of these people who I just listed just before ever started out with the intention of having a severe problem causing them to fall as a Christian leader. And yet all of them that were raised to positions that seemed to exceed their character on the inside. The reason that these people can often be raised to these positions is because they demonstrate charisma and competency. 
They draw people in with their charisma. They smile at the right time. They say the right things. They might make you feel special. They preach sermons that draw you in and make you feel good. They have a quality that just makes you feel special inside. Or they draw people in with their competency. They're competent leaders knowing all the right books, saying the right things, knowing the right graphs. They've done the right degrees. They have their theology pinned down and have thought through everything better than anyone else. And they can preach and lead and make it look easy. Now, neither of those things are bad. In fact, I would argue if, that you are going, if you're going to be uh, a Christian leader, these are actually very helpful things, particularly competency to have in a, uh, in a leader. You do want leaders who are competent in what they do. But Paul, in his letter to Titus here, he doesn't speak about either of those things as being the essential markers for a Christian leader. Rather, he speaks to the character of a leader being paramount above everything else. So if you are going to be an effective Christian leader in the workplace, in the church, in any sphere in your life, your character is the thing that is paramount. Put simply, very simply, character matters. It matters for Christian leaders. It matters for you if you are a leader in any sphere in, uh, in your life. Paul details 15 requirements here in Titus 1 of what Christian leaders should have. Um, and that he, uh, he details these by saying that Titus, you need to strive to have these 15 different attributes in your own leadership. First one is that they must be blameless. At other points in the New Testament, we see the language above reproach. And so the whole point of this is not saying that a Christian leader must be flawless, but they should be of good reputation. They should be known more widely than just the church as having a good reputation. They must be faithful in marriage with trustworthy children. First one here. The language here, faithful to his wife and being someone whose children believe uh, and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient, has far more to it than just you would see uh, right there. Other translations will say, a man of one wife. Um, I know uh, one uh, person in particular, this person has changed their belief, uh, and they believe that this means that every single pastor must be married and can't be single. That's a bit of an issue when you look at the rest of the New Testament because Jesus was single. And Paul, from what we know who writes this, he was fairly likely single as well. Now, the point of this is not your status of marriage. Rather, it is saying that a leader needs to be faithful to their wife. It was a common practice for men in ancient times to be um, a bit more promiscuous um, with people who weren't their, their wives. Um, and their wives weren't able to do anything about it during that period. So Paul is saying to Titus, as a Christian leader, you must be faithful to your wife. And then he goes on and speaks about the children of a Christian leader, which gets very, very tricky. I know a lot of pastors who have children who don't believe in Jesus is Paul saying that they are somehow then disqualified from ministry uh, here in this passage? The word translated as believe is better understood as meaning children who are trustworthy. So these children should display aspects of their parents' lifestyle that takes place behind closed doors. Now, based on everything that I have said this morning, 
and the fact that I've listed all of these pastors who have fallen, why should you trust anything that I have to say? I haven't made pastors look particularly good in the people who I have mentioned up here this morning. I mean, I am a, pa- I am a pastor. I'm part of the club. I'm part of the club who in recent years has not necessarily given Christianity the best name. Now, some of you I do know better than others, and some of you have gotten closer to me than others and been able to see different uh, aspects of my character. But the real place that my character is on display is not here in the church, but at home. And it's not always pretty. My wife and my child and possibly future children, they will know my character better than anyone else. And the point of what Paul is saying here is gain an understanding from the family and the household. Know what the Christian leader's character is really like behind closed doors. That's where it is most evidenced. There won't always be consistency. A Christian leader's child is an individual with their own personality, but look for signs at how that child might be raised in the ways of Jesus. So that's the uh, the second couple. They must not be overbearing and not quick-tempered. As a Christian leader, you will face lots of frustration and annoyance at times, and you can't react by becoming a control freak or becoming angry. They must not be given to drunkenness. They must not be violent. They must not not pursue dishonest gain. So Christian leadership, it is not about pursuing any kind of gain for yourself at all. The fact uh, of Christian leadership is that it's, uh, it's all about leaving yourself behind in order to make Jesus' name more known. They must be hospitable, so they must be willing to invite people behind to see their, uh, their, um, their private self and be willing to show what they're like behind closed doors. They must love what is good, be self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined, and a teacher of sound doctrine. So they should understand what they believe, why they believe it, and then be able to tell others why they believe it. Now, that's what Paul says the qualities of a Christian leader should be. So, in your mind, is your list the same? Is that your list? Putting it very bluntly, if that's not your list, then your list is wrong. (laughs) Many of us, we might be drawn to other things when it comes to Christian leadership. A well-known article called The Perfect Pastor says this, The perfect pastor preaches exactly 10 minutes. He condemns sin roundly. I'm already out of there, so I'm gone. He condemns sin roundly, but never hurts anyone's feelings. He works from 8 a.m. until midnight and is also the church janitor. The perfect pastor makes $40 a week, wears good clothes, new shirt from the wife, by the way, uh, drives a good car, buys good books, and donates $30 a week to the church. He is 29 years old and has 40 years experience. Above all, he is handsome. Well, you have that in spades right here. The perfect pastor has a burning desire to do work with teenagers and he spends most of his time with the senior citizens. He smiles all the time with a straight face because he has a sense of humour that keeps him seriously dedicated to his church. He makes 15 home visits a day and is always in his office to be handy when needed. 
The perfect pastor always has time for a for church council and all of its committees. He never misses the meeting of any church organization and is always busy evangelizing the unchurched. The perfect pastor is always in the next church over. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't live up to that list. No one does. You'll never find the perfect church pastor at all. And that's not the point of what, uh, of what Paul is speaking about here. Many people, we can have a, uh, a list that is maybe not the same as the list that Paul provides throughout his letter to Titus, but we might, um, we might have a list more like this when it comes to church leadership. Now, whether people want to admit it or not, it can be easy to see Christian leaders primarily as doers rather than seeing them as what God has called them to do, which is leadership. Christian leaders, they are there primarily to, to lead and not just do tasks. This means that those with leadership gifts should be given the space and position to be able to lead. So don't rely on them to just do the uh, do what other, what other people with other gifts should be doing. There's a few different words in the New Testament referring to this office of leadership. We can see the, word, uh, the, the words elder or overseer or even at times pastor used interchangeably all of the time. So even here in this passage that we just read throughout Titus, there is both the word elder and overseer used interchangeably. But the meaning is the same for all of them. This overseer is to take a position of oversight in the church and over other followers of Jesus. It's their job to uphold the requirements laid out by Paul in his letter to, to Titus. So a list for what we want in a pastor or a Christian leader can be for more, uh, far more like the list that we've seen just there of the perfect pastor rather than the list provided by Paul. And yet, even with Paul's list, it's important to remember that there needs to be room for grace. Later on in this letter, we see that Paul's instructions are fueled by the gospel. And a necessary aspect of anyone's understanding of the gospel is grace. Because we have been extended grace through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we should be willing to extend, to a certain point, grace towards everyone, including Christian leaders. Ultimately, Paul's point isn't to just make a list, but rather to say Christian leaders should display Christian character as evidence that they are growing in their relationship with Jesus. Now, as someone who's been working in Christian leadership for a little while now, it can be difficult at times to live up to what Paul instructs of Titus here. And the further up in leadership, the more difficult it can potentially get. The more people you, uh, the more people you have telling you that you're doing a bad job and the more people you have telling you that you're doing a great job. So it becomes more and more difficult to become, uh, to not be painfully self-deprecating and painfully arrogant at the same time. And so it's important for all Christian leaders to endeavor to not do leadership alone. It is not a lone ranger sport. In verse 5, Paul is very specific about his language. Appoint elders, more than one, or overseers, but it's in the plural form. They're not supposed to do this journey on their own. 
all throughout the New Testament. We see this as the pattern of New Testament leadership, that leadership should not be done alone. All of the people who I listed earlier on, who fell in some way in Christian leadership, happened because they were seen as the lone ranger who knew how everything needed to be done. They were doing leadership alone. But if leadership is not supposed to be done alone, then what should it look like? This next part of what I'm going to speak about may be boring for some of you, but it is important, uh, particularly as we, uh, as we look to different church traditions around us. Depending on the tradition of church that you grew up in, uh, depends on how you understand how churches should be structured. Many of you have possibly grown up in different denominations or even in a Baptist church that did things very differently from the way that we do things here, which influences greatly how you understand how a church should be governed. There are a few different uh, groups that we see around the world today uh, with different backgrounds on how they may structure a church so that leaders aren't leading alone. If you grew up in the Catholic Church, Orthodox Church, Anglican Church, United Methodist Church, or some Lutheran churches, your experience would have been something like what you see on the screen right now. In this understanding of church government, there is the office of bishop or episcopate, uh, who is distinct and superior to the officer of different local churches. This model is very hierarchical, uh, with the bishop directing the priests or the rectors, who then minister down to their local congregations. This bishop will govern an area or diocese and in turn will be governed by an archbishop. Uh, this was one of the first forms of church uh, governance established and has used um, the fact that it was one of the first, uh, the first uh, models um, that, was, uh, that was established as a basis for this form of, of governance. Many Episcopal theologians will also teach um, that because it uh, started in the first five centuries of the church, that this shows God's spirit directing towards this model of church. So that's one model of, uh, of, um, of leadership not happening alone that you may see uh, around the place. The second model that we might see in churches is Presbyterianism. This quite obviously is the form adopted by Presbyterian churches and also some other uh, reformed churches. There are also some Pentecostal groups that may operate in a similar fashion to this, although more loosely and, uh, and quite rare. In Presbyterianism, there is a group of elders chosen by, uh, chosen by the members, um, and together they form what is called a session. These elders are made up of teaching elders, or TEs, and ruling elders, or RES. Teaching elders are generally those employed by the church and do the work of ministry, and ruling elders primarily join with the teaching elders to take care of spiritual oversight matters. Elders from each different session, they will come together in an area to form a presbytery, which has this ruling authority over the churches underneath it. Above this, some of the elders from each presbytery will come together to form a voice that, uh, that governs the entire denomination called their General Assembly. So that's Presbyterianism. But then we come to a model that is probably far more familiar for many of you if you have been a part of this church for some time. We come to a model called Congregationalism. The key distinguishing factor in this model of church governance is autonomy of the local church. 
And there are two forms of, uh, of congregationalism, plural elder congregationalism and single elder congregationalism. What the autonomy of the local church means is that essentially each church to a certain level is independent to operate in a way that they believe God is calling them to and they can achieve their own vision uh, according to how they see the Holy Spirit leading their church. This plural elder congregationalism is a blend of congregationalism and Presbyterianism. So underneath uh, under this model, all elders are teachers and there is no one particular person considered the, uh, the leader above anyone else. Churches like this reject the idea of a lead or a senior pastor, so I wouldn't be welcome there, unfortunately, arguing that there are benefits in plurality. Um, there are some Baptist churches who practice this, as well as some churches of Christ and other independent churches. And then there is single elder congregationalism. It's not necessarily the best name for it. Uh, single elder congregationalism is similar to how we operate as a church. There is a pastor who is recognized as the spiritual leader of the church, the senior or lead pastor. They then re uh, report to a group, whether it's a diaconate or eldership, a mix of both, a board or a church council council like our church for accountability, support and empowerment. Uh, and the members of this governance group are chosen from the members of the church. This includes churches with associate pastors and other ministry workers, but have one particular person set aside as the key leader. Now, many of the most well-known uh, churches in Protestantism operate under this or a similar model, and this is practiced in a lot of Baptist and Pentecostal churches. And there are multiple reasons that we practice this form of church governance in our church uh, and in many other churches around. So we believe that each body should have the autonomy to follow the direction that the Spirit of God is leading them to. Every area is different, every church culture is different, and so it doesn't make sense to just have an external figure determining what a certain body should look and exist like. That's first reason. So leaders should be allowed to lead. That's the second principle here. There are countless examples of individual, individual people who are leaders of particular groups throughout the New Testament. Um, these leaders, they were gifted in leadership and required to lead. That's evidenced just by the fact that this letter is written to Titus as a young leader. That doesn't mean that they're meant to lead on their own, but there were always um, people providing accountability and support for these uh, individual, uh, individual leaders, which is what our church council does here at Brackenridge. This model, it provides um, both team leadership and accountability whilst allowing those uh, set aside for leadership to lead. And as crude as it sounds, practically, a very pragmatic way, it actually just works. Having a person or even group of people responsible for certain uh, leadership things means that the decisions um, uh, can be made more efficiently um, and by the people with necessary uh, understanding. Now, some of the implications of this is that we, in this church, we appoint our own leaders. We're not told by an external body who we must have. Leaders are accountable to the local church body. We discern our own vision, not the denomination that we're a part of. And there are also many other implications of this, but these are just a few of them. Now, although I um, value this 
model of church governance strongly and believe that it is the most effective model when we talk about accountability for leaders and support of leaders. This is not a hill that I am willing to die on. Although I believe that this is the most effective model um, and is presented throughout the New Testament, governance is something that is far less um, uh, informed by prayer and discernment, and it's actually informed far more by present practical needs. So in Acts 2, the reason that deacons were appointed is simply because the apostles, they were wasting their time with things that they weren't very gifted with, and so they appointed other people to take care of practical needs. It was a response out of a practical need, not a deeply thought-out theological reasoning. Few different uh, theologians uh, agree with this. Um, Millard Erickson says, churches are not commanded to adopt a particular form of church order. There may well have been rather wide varieties of governmental arrangements among New Testament churches, and each church adopted a pattern which fit its individual uh, situation. David L. Smith says, the ministry of governance of the church is an important one, yet scripture never sets forth one form of governance as the one God-ordained model. At most, the Bible advances certain principles that suggest a representative role, principles best served by the congregational form, but nothing prohibits other forms which would work effectively while allowing the members a major voice in the making of decisions. And Wayne Grudem, very well-known theologian, says, the form of church governance a government is not a major doctrine like the Trinity, the deity of Christ, substitutionary atonement, or the authority of Scripture. It seems to me, then, that there ought to be room for evangelical Christians to differ amicably over this question in the hope that future understanding may be gained. And it also seems that individual Christians, while they may have a preference for one system or another, should nevertheless be willing to live and minister within any of several different Protestant systems of church governments in which they may find themselves from time to time. Now, if you want any more information uh, about this, if you are a, uh, a nerd of ecclesiology, um, you can read a book which is Who Runs the Church? Four Different Views on Church Government uh, for a helpful overview and debate on each of these four perspectives I spoke about with you today. Now, how a church structures its leaders, it really does matter. And it matters for the reasons that I mentioned uh, at, the to- at the start of our time together but it doesn't necessarily matter in the way that we think it matters. There are some consistent, essential principles that are required for any leadership structure throughout the New Testament. First one, Christian leaders shouldn't lead alone. Although there is a need to provide leaders the ability to lead, leadership is not a Lone Ranger affair. The worst thing a leader can do is try and do leadership as a lone ranger with no people being able to speak into their lives. Out of all the apostles, Peter would have been considered the main guy who is the leader, and yet we see even in the New Testament the necessity for Paul to speak directly into Peter's life at one stage. That's the first principle. Second principles, Christian leaders, they need accountability, support, and empowerments. Because Christian leaders shouldn't lead alone, those who gather around them should provide these three different things, accountability, support, and empowerments. In our church, the way that this 
uh, happens is through our church council having the job of providing that for me and then it's my job in turn to provide that for our staff team as we minister to the church and community together. Third principle, Christian leaders are there to lead. There are a few words used synonymously throughout the New Testament, as I mentioned before. There is this word pastor, elder, and overseer. Um, and we see these two words, elder and overseer, used in, uh, here in Titus 1. Um, and the general requirement of all three of those different words is this one principle of shepherd. If you are a Christian leader, whether it's in the workplace or in the church in any way, it is your job to shepherd those underneath you. It is not your job to be the doer of every single thing. It's not your job to be the best at every single thing. It is your job to shepherd through leadership and ministry of the word. Fourth principle about a, uh, any uh, leadership structure is Christian leaders are also followers. The final, and this is the most important principle of, uh, of any Christian leadership structure, all Christian leaders are followers. Every person irrelevant of how high you work your way up in any organisation, you are a follower of someone else. And particularly in Christian leadership, we are all followers of the same King, who is Jesus. I am his follower. You are his follower. Irrelevant of how important you might ever become or how high up you work, you are a follower of Jesus. One of the primary reasons that Christian leaders either fall in ministry or burn out in ministry is because these principles are not, uh, are not adhered to. These are essential to the ongoing health of any Christian leader. It's when people are promoted too early or they have charisma and competency which outweigh their character or they lack accountability and the ability to work with others that people will fall in leadership. It's the cry of Paul's heart throughout this entire letter, throughout the book of Titus, that this would not be the case for his young friend, for his young friend Titus. Paul goes so far as to tell Titus to reject and, and, uh, and rebuke those who don't display characteristics of healthy leadership. There were these Jewish uh, Jewish Christian leaders who were displaying signs opposed to what Christ-like leadership portrayed. And although they gained this following from verses 10 to 16, Paul tells Titus to reject any leader who is not growing in their Christ-likeness. Now, some of you sitting here today or joining with us online, you might have heard everything that I've said and you might think that this is irrelevant for you. You might not be a leader in any particular way, and you might feel like this doesn't really apply to you necessarily. You might think this is super relevant for you, Dave. <laughs> I mean, you're a pastor, but this has nothing to do with me. And those thoughts I can understand and empathize with. My guess is, though, that for most of you, you have had a person in your life a Christian leader who you have respected and admired, who has gone in an opposite way than what you thought. They may have sinned in an unexpected way, they may have left the faith, or they may have broken your trust, and whether or not they had a recognised position of leadership or not, this person had influence over you in some way, and therefore had a responsibility to, uh, to adhere to what Paul says to Titus here. Some of you today, you will be that very person who is a Christian leader 
or a future Christian leader, you younger people in the room, you may have the potential of influencing others in the future for the sake of Jesus. And you will either do this for the better or for the worse. And Paul's words to Titus here are so that he will influence other people for Jesus for the better. So to finish today, I just want to give you some takeaways from Titus 1 that are relevant for all of us here this morning that can help you practice this in your life. First one, if you are a Christian leader, be a Titus 1 Christian leader. What is described throughout Titus 1 is for all Christian leaders, not just pastors. Displaying this kind of Christ-like character is relevant for you whether you're a Christian leader in the workplace or in the church or in some other avenue as well. You are on display as a follower of Jesus and the further up you go, the more important it is to display this kind of leadership in your life. Second principle, second takeaway. Titus 1 character applies to everyone, not just leaders. Although Paul is specifically addressing Titus as a Christian leader, this is less about leadership and more so about simply demonstrating the kind of lifestyle that every Christian should lead. Every Christian should be seeking to live a Titus 1 kind of life, but leaders in particular need to demonstrate this clearly. Third takeaway, provide what is needed for leaders to live in a Titus 1 kind of way. To live in this kind of way, it can be difficult at times, no one's perfect, and no one's going to get it right 100% of the time. So provide it what is necessary through support, empowerment, and accountability to ensure your leaders are able to achieve this. And the fourth takeaway for us this morning is follow leaders who display Titus 1 kind of leadership. In this room right now, you are in some form under my leadership because I'm simply speaking uh, to you. But at other times in your life, you are going to leave this room and you're going to find yourself under another person's leadership at different times in your life. You might join a new group in the church you serve in. You might serve under a new leader. You might move one day and go to a different place. I might die and then someone else is going to come and take my place. It will happen one day. There are a hundred different reasons that you might be required to follow a certain Christian leader at some point and so ensure that they are a Titus 1 kind of leader. They're your takeaways today from Titus 1. So let's pray together right now. Actually, let's stand together and pray and just pray that these takeaways might um, what, speak to us. In particular, Lord, I just really want to lift up anyone here this morning who has come here and has heard everything I've said. They have wondered what here is applicable for them. And yet, Lord, these 15 different qualities of what we see that you have listed here throughout Titus 1, they are relevant for all of us who call ourselves a follower of Jesus. Lord, we don't want to just be people who see a list and feel like we just need to adhere to a bunch of rules and obligations. But out of the grace that you have shown us, King Jesus, we want to grow more like you as we grow closer to you. 
So we don't, uh, we don't seek to do any of this by our own strength. We seek to follow you, King Jesus, and allow you to change our lives from the inside out. Lord, for anyone here this morning who is a leader in, uh, in some secular way, whether it's through their workplace, through a club, through some other means, Lord, I just really pray that you will give them an understanding of what it means to be a Titus 1 kind of leader. Would you enable them to lead in, their, in the place of influence that you have given them? Would you give them a Christ-likeness that is able to speak to others so that the gospel may be proclaimed faithfully? Lord, for anyone who is a leader in our church here today, whatever that looks like, Lord, I just lift up those who are life group leaders, who are youth leaders, who are kids leaders, who are junior leaders, worship leaders, in any form of leadership here, Lord. I just really pray that you will grow all of us in Christ-likeness. Help us to use our influence that we have to be able to speak life into people's lives. Yeah, we want to be a people who represent you faithfully, Jesus. So help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.